Book Two, Sections Fifteen through Seventeen of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Two, The Serfs of King Cole, Section Fifteen. Would they wait until morning, or would they come soon? He was inclined to the latter guess, so he was only slightly startled when, an hour or two later, he heard the knob of the cabin door turned. A moment later came a crash, and the door was burst open, with the shoulder of a heavy man behind it. The room was in confusion in a second. Men sprang to their feet, crying out. Others sat up bewildered, still half asleep. The room was bright from an electric torch in the hands of one of the invaders. "'There's the fellow!' cried a voice, which Hal instantly recognized as belonging to Jeff Cotton, the camp marshal. "'Stick him up there! You, Joe Smith!' Hal did not wait to see the glint of the marshal's revolver. There followed a silence. As this drama was being staged for the benefit of the other men, it was necessary to give them time to get thoroughly awake, and to get their eyes used to the light. Meantime Hal stood, his hands in the air. Behind the torch he could make out the faces of the marshal, Bud Adams, Alex Stone, Jake Pedrovich, and two or three others. "'Now, men,' said Cotton, at last, "'you are some of the fellows that want to check Wayman, and this is the man you chose, is that right?' There was no answer. "'I'm going to show you the kind of fellow he is.' He came to Mr. Stone here and offered to sell you out. "'It's a lie, men,' said Hal quietly. "'He took some money for Mr. Stone to sell you out,' insisted the marshal. "'It's a lie,' said Hal again. "'He's got that money now,' cried the other. And Hal cried in turn, "'They are trying to frame something on me, boys. Don't let them fool you.' "'Shut up,' commanded the marshal then to the men. I'll show you. I think he's got that money on him now. Jake, search him. The store clerk advanced. Watch out, boys, exclaimed Hal. They will put something in my pockets. And then to old Mike, who had started angrily forward. It's all right, Mike. Let them alone. Jake, take off your coat, ordered Cotton. Roll up your sleeves. Show your hands. It was, for all the world, like the performance of a prestidigitator. The little Jew took off his coat and rolled up his sleeves above his elbows. He exhibited his hands to the audience, turning them this way and that. Then, keeping them out in front of him, he came slowly towards Hal, like a hypnotist about to put him to sleep. "'Watch him,' said Cotton. "'He's got that money on him, I know.' "'Look sharp,' cried Hal. If it isn't there, they'll put it there. Keep your hands up, young fellow, commanded the marshal. Keep back from him there. This last to Mike Sicoria and the other spectators, who were pressing nearer, peering over one another's shoulders. It was all very serious at the time, but afterwards, when Hal recalled the scene, he laughed over the grotesque figure of Pedrovich, searching his pockets while keeping as far away from him as possible, so that everyone might know that the money had actually come out of Hal's pocket. The searcher put his hands first in the inside pockets, then in the pockets of Hal's shirt. Time was needed to build up this climax. "'Turn around,' commanded Cotton, 
and Hal turned, and the Jew went through his trouser pockets. He took out in turn Hal's watch, his comb and mirror, his handkerchief. After examining them and holding them up, he dropped them onto the floor. There was a breathless hush when he came to Hal's purse, and proceeded to open it. Thanks to the greed of the company, there was nothing in the purse but some small change. Pedrovich closed it and dropped it to the floor. "'Wait now. He's not through,' cried the master of ceremonies. "'He's got that money somewhere, boys. Did you look in his side pockets, Jake?' "'Not yet,' said Jake. "'Look sharp,' cried the marshal, and everyone craned forward eagerly, while Pedrovich stooped down on one knee and put his hand into one coat pocket and then into the other. He took his hand out again, and the look of dismay upon his face was so obvious that Hal could hardly keep from laughing. "'It ain't there!' he declared. "'What?' cried Cotton, and they stared at each other. "'By God, he's got rid of it!' "'There's no money on me, boys,' proclaimed Hal. "'It's a job they are trying to put over on us.' "'He's hit it!' shouted the marshal. "'Find it, Jake!' Then Pedrovich began to search again, swiftly, and with less circumstance. He was not thinking so much about the spectators now, as about all that good money gone for nothing. He made Hal take off his coat, and ripped open the lining. He unbuttoned the trousers, and felt inside. He thrust his fingers down inside Hal's shoes. But there was no money, and the searchers were at a standstill. "'He took twenty-five dollars for Mr. Stone to sell you out,' declared the marshal. "'He's managed to get rid of it somehow.' "'Boys,' cried Hal, "'they sent a spy in here and told him to put money on me.' He was looking at Apostolicus as he spoke. He saw the man start and shrink back. "'That's him! He's a scab!' cried old Mike. "'He's got the money on him, I bet!' And he made a move towards the Greek." So the camp-marshal realized suddenly that it was time to ring down the curtain on this drama. "'That's enough of this foolishness,' he declared. "'Bring that fellow along, here!' And in a flash a couple of the party had seized Hal's wrists, and a third had grabbed him by the collar of his shirt. Before the miners had time to realize what was happening, they had rushed their prisoner out of the cabin." The quarter of an hour which followed was an uncomfortable one for the would-be Czech wayman. Outside, in the darkness, the camp-marshal was free to give vent to his rage, and so was Alec Stone. They poured out curses upon him, and kicked him and cuffed him as they went along. One of the men who held his wrists twisted his arm until he cried out with pain. Then they cursed him harder and bade him hold his mouth. Down the dark and silent street they went swiftly, and into the camp-marshal's office, and upstairs to the room which served as the North Valley jail. Hal was glad enough when they left him here, slamming the iron door behind them. End of Section 15 Section 16 It had been a crude and stupid plot, yet Hal realized that it was adapted to the intelligence of the men for whom it was intended. But for the accident that he had stayed awake, they would have found the money on him, and next morning the whole camp would have heard that he had sold out. Of course his immediate friends, the members of the committee, would not have believed it, 
but the mass of the workers would have believed it, and so the purpose of Tom Olson's visit to North Valley would have been balked. Throughout the experiences which were to come to him, Hal retained his vivid impression of that adventure. It served to him as a symbol of many things. Just as the bosses had tried to bedevil him, to destroy his influence with his followers, so later on he saw them trying to bedevil the labor movement, to confuse the intelligence of the whole country. Now Hal was in jail. He went to the window and tried the bars, but found that they had been made for such trials. Then he groped his way about in the darkness, examining his prison, which proved to be a steel cage built inside the walls of an ordinary room. In one corner was a bench, and in another corner another bench, somewhat broader, with a mattress upon it. Hal had read a little about jails, enough to cause him to avoid this mattress. He sat upon the bare bench and began to think. It is a fact that there is a peculiar psychology incidental to being in jail, just as there is a peculiar psychology incidental to straining your back and breaking your hands loading coal cars in a five-foot vein, and another and quite different psychology produced by living at ease off the labors of coal miners. In a jail you have, first of all, the sense of being an animal. The animal side of your being is emphasized. The animal passions of hatred and fear are called into prominence, and if you are to escape being dominated by them, it can only be by intense and concentrated effort of the mind. So, if you are a thinking man, you do a great deal of thinking in a jail. The days are long and the nights still longer. You have time for all the thoughts you can have. The bench was hard and seemed to grow harder. There was no position in which it could be made to grow soft. Hal got up and paced about, then he lay down for a while, then got up and walked again, and all the while he thought, and all the while the jail psychology was being impressed upon his mind. First he thought about his immediate problem. What were they going to do to him? The obvious thing would be to put him out of camp, and so be done with him. But would they rest content with that, in their irritation at the trick he had played? Hal had heard vaguely of that Native American institution, the Third Degree, but had never had occasion to think of it as a possibility in his own life. What a difference it made to think of it in that way! Hal had told Tom Olson that he would not pledge himself to organize a union, but that he would pledge himself to get a check weighman, and Olson had laughed and seemed quite content, apparently assuming that it would come to the same thing. And now it rather seemed that Olson had known what he was talking about. For Hal found his thoughts no longer troubled with fears of labor union domination and walking delegate tyranny. On the contrary, he became suddenly willing for the people of North Valley to have a union, and to be as tyrannical as they knew how. And in this change, though Hal had no idea of it, he was repeating an experience common among reformers, many of whom begin as mild and benevolent advocates of some obvious bit of justice, and under the operation of the jail psychology are made into blazing and determined revolutionists. 
Eternal spirit of the chainless mind, says Byron, greatest in dungeons liberty thou art. The poet goes on to add that, when thy sons to fetters are confined, then freedom's fame finds wings on every wind. And just as it was in Shalon, so it seemed to be in North Valley. Dawn came, and Hal stood at the window of his cell, and heard the whistle blow, and saw the workers going to their tasks, the toil-bent, pallid-faced creatures of the underworld, like a file of baboons in the half-light. He waved his hand to them, and they stopped and stared, and then waved back. He realized that every one of those men must be thinking about his imprisonment, and the reason for it, and so the jail psychology was being communicated to them. If any of them cherished distrust of unions or doubt of the need of organization in North Valley, that distrust and that doubt were being dissipated. There was only one thing discouraging about the matter, as Hal thought it over. Why should the bosses have left him here in plain sight, when they might so easily have put him into an automobile and whisked him down to Pedro before daylight? Was it a sign of the contempt they felt for their slaves? Did they count upon the sight of the prisoner in the window to produce fear instead of resentment? And might it not be that they understood their workers better than the would-be check weighman? He recalled Mary Burke's pessimism about them, and anxiety gnawed at his soul, and, such is the operation of the jail psychology, he fought against this anxiety. He hated the company for its cynicism. He clenched his hands and set his teeth, desiring to teach the bosses a lesson, to prove to them that their workers were not slaves, but men. End of section 16 Section 17 Toward the middle of the morning, Hal heard footsteps in the corridor outside, and a man whom he did not know opened the barred door and set down a pitcher of water and a tin plate with a hunk of bread on it. When he started to leave, Hal spoke. "'Just a minute, please.' The other frowned at him. "'Can you give me any idea how long I am to stay in here?' "'I cannot,' said the man. "'If I'm to be locked up,' said Hal, "'I've certainly a right to know what is the charge against me.' "'Go to blazes,' said the other, and slammed the door and went down the corridor." Hal went to the window again, and passed the time watching the people who went by. Groups of ragged children gathered, looking up at him, grinning and making signs, until someone appeared below and ordered them away. As time passed, Hal became hungry. The taste of bread, eaten alone, becomes speedily monotonous, and the taste of water does not relieve it. Nevertheless, Hal munched the bread and drank the water, and wished for more. The day dragged by, and late in the afternoon the keeper came again, with another hunk of bread and another pitcher of water. "'Listen a moment,' said Hal, as the man was turning away. "'I got nothing to say to you,' said the other. "'I have something to say to you,' pleaded Hal. "'I have read in a book, I forget where, but it was written by some doctor, that white bread does not contain the elements necessary to the sustaining of the human body. 
"'Go on,' growled the jailer. "'What you're giving us?' "'I mean,' explained Hal, "'a diet of bread and water is not what I'd choose to live on.' "'What would your choose?' The tone suggested that the question was a rhetorical one, but Hal took it in good faith. "'If I could have some beefsteak and mashed potatoes—' The door of the cell closed with a slam whose echoes drowned out the rest of that imaginary menu. And so once more Hal sat on the hard bench, and munched his hunk of bread, and thought jail thoughts. When the quitting whistle blew, he stood at the window and saw the groups of his friends once again, and got their covert signals of encouragement. Then darkness fell, and another long vigil began. It was late. Hal had no means of telling how late, save that all the lights in the camp were out. He made up his mind that he was in for the night, and had settled himself on the floor with his arm for a pillow, and had dozed off to sleep, when suddenly there came a scraping sound against the bars of his window. He sat up with a start, and heard another sound, unmistakably the rustling of paper. He sprang to the window, where by the faint light of the stars he could make out something dangling. He caught at it. It seemed to be an ordinary notebook, such as stenographers use, tied on the end of a pole. Hal looked out, but could see no one. He caught hold of the pole and jerked it as a signal, and then he heard a whisper which he recognized instantly as Rovetta's. "'Hello! Listen! Write your name hundred times in book. I come back. Understand?' The command was a sufficiently puzzling one, but Hal realized that this was no time for explanations. He answered, "'Yes,' and broke the string and took the notebook. There was a pencil attached, with a piece of cloth wrapped round the point to protect it. The pole was withdrawn, and Hal sat on the bench and began to write, three or four times on a page, Joe Smith, Joe Smith, Joe Smith. It is not hard to write Joe Smith, even in darkness, and so, while his hand moved, Hal's mind was busy with this mystery. It was fairly to be assumed that his committee did not want his autograph to distribute for a souvenir. They must want it for some vital purpose, to meet some new move of the bosses. The answer to this riddle was not slow in coming. Having failed in their effort to find money on him, the bosses had framed up a letter, which they were exhibiting as having been written by the would-be check weighman. His friends wanted his signature to disprove the authenticity of the letter. Hal wrote a free and rapid hand, with a generous flourish. He felt sure it would be different from Alec Stone's idea of a working boy's scrawl. His pencil flew on and on, Joe Smith, Joe Smith, page after page, until he was sure that he had written a signature for every miner in the camp and was beginning on the buddies. Then, hearing a whistle outside, he stopped and sprang to the window. "'Throw it!' whispered a voice, and Hal threw it. He saw a form vanish up the street, after which all was quiet again. He listened for a while, to see if he had roused his jailer. Then he lay down on the bench, and thought more jail thoughts. 
End of section 17